Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Kim and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time during the call, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thanks, Kim. Well, hello and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA and IHI, that is the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name is Madge Kaplan. I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and I will serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. Um, they are designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article, and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Alex Kemper. He is the first author of the article, Follow-Up Testing Among Children with Elevated Screening Blood Lead Levels, published in the May 11th issue of JAMA. Dr. Kemper is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Michigan. He splits his time between health service research and providing primary care in a practice in his local community. Dr. Kemper's primary research activities are related to the evaluation of preventive services delivery for children. Welcome, Dr. Kemper. Hi, good to be here. Terrific. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Wright's findings with an eye toward that all-important clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, and he's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo. Good to be here, Madge. Wonderful. Now, the purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice, because we know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is actually delivered can be daunting. Each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert. He or she suggests how to first plan, then try out some new ways of doing things on a small scale, observe the results, refine methods, and eventually come to a place where the change or changes have the desired impact and can be fully implemented. That's the role that Dr. Kylo will be playing today. The way our hour together will go is as follows. Dr. Kemper will spend 15 minutes summarizing his research. Dr. Kylo will then jump in and take about 10 minutes to describe improvement methods and suggest some practical ways to apply today's findings to medical practice. And then at the bottom of the hour, 2.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Time, very close to that, we'll turn to questions from callers and some discussion. Now, IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. That's why we're asking that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are email.
email to you, and we really thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. Uh, there are about or nearly 100 phone lines engaged with us today. Uh, members of the media may be present. You should know that on uh, the call on a background basis only, however. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So welcome all, and let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Alex Kemper, who will provide an overview of his newly published published research in JAMA. Dr. Kemper, go ahead. Hi, um, thank you very much, Madge. And again, this is Alex Kemper, pediatrician at the University of Michigan. So before getting to the details of the study, I'd like to first talk briefly about what we know about lead poisoning and what the current recommendations are for screening, testing, and follow-up management. I think that that's important to provide the context for uh, the research study. So uh, to begin, the, the main sources of lead in our, in our environment come from lead-based paint, which was banned in 1978, and leaded gasoline, which was phased out by 1986. However, there are numerous other sources of potential lead exposure, including water that's passed through, lead pipes, lead-glazed earthenware, and a number of different folk medicines. The primary way that lead's absorbed is through the gastrointestinal tract, and young children are at particularly high risk for lead poisoning because of mouthing behaviors. It's important to know, too, that uh, children who have iron deficiency will absorb greater amounts of lead. Uh, after absorption, lead's primarily deposited in the bone, and, and because of this, when you get a blood lead level, you're really looking at, at the tip of the iceberg. As far as the harms of lead goes, it's important to understand that, that no organism, and that, that includes you and me, has a lead-dependent metabolic pathway. Lead really has many uh, different adverse effects um, because it affects a, a host of different systems, primarily uh, by binding um, to, uh, to proteins leading to enzyme inactivation. Also, mitochondria are particularly sensitive to lead poisoning. At the low levels of elevated blood lead that, that children typically have when it is elevated, there, there are two important effects. Uh, those are uh, anemia and uh, cognitive impairment. The cognitive impairment uh, is dose-dependent for levels between 10 and 30 micrograms per deciliter. There may be a loss of uh, five IQ points or so. And although that may not seem like a big drop for an individual, it's, it has important consequences when thinking about whole populations of children. Also, there's evidence of more subtle cognitive uh, uh, impacts at, at these levels. Also, there's evidence that suggests that, that levels below 10 micrograms per deciliter, which is the current action level, that there um, may be cognitive impairment. Other effects at high levels of uh, blood lead include acute encephalopathy, peripheral neuropathy, uh, and colic. Uh, and in adults, past exposure to lead has been associated with a, a host of different problems, including cataracts and hypertension. So as I mentioned, the current action level is 10 micrograms per deciliter. That is, any level at or above 10 micrograms per deciliter is considered to be elevated. And over the years, the action level has been lowered as the proportion of children with lead poisoning has fallen, and as we've gained new knowledge about the harmful effects of lead. Uh, now about 2% of all children have an elevated blood lead level, which is a real marked decrease over the past few decades. 
As a matter of fact, in the, in the 1970s, more than 80% of uh, individuals had an elevated blood lead level according to the current threshold of 10 micrograms per deciliter. And that, that's a real credit to primary prevention activities such as um, removing lead from gasoline and, and banning lead-based paint. However, some children continue to be at high risk. For example, children who are enrolled in Medicaid have a threefold increase in the rate of elevated blood lead levels compared to those uh, who aren't in Medicaid. Now, because of the decrease in the proportion of children with elevated blood lead levels, the CDC changed their recommendations for how to identify children with elevated blood lead levels. Prior to 1997, the CDC recommended near universal testing of all children. The CDC now recommends that all children should be screened for risk, and those children at risk should be tested. And just to clarify, when I say screening, I, I mean risk assessment, and when I, mean, when I say testing, I mean actually drawing the blood. Let me say that again. Screening is the, the process of risk assessment, and testing is the actual process of, of getting the blood from the child. So there are three main categories of risk um, to be assessed by screening. First, those children enrolled in public assistance programs like uh, uh, WIC or um, Medicaid are, are at high risk, as, as I previously mentioned. Uh, and in fact, um, Medicaid uh, mandates that all children be tested at one and two years of age, or between three and five years if they hadn't been previously tested. Uh, second, children who live in areas with a heavy lead burden are at high risk. And so each state has developed a list of zip codes associated with a high risk of lead poisoning. And this is um, usually based on the age of the housing stock within the um, community. And sometimes other factors are, are brought into the development of these high risk zip code lists, such as the um, proportion of children with an elevated blood lead level living within that zip code area, or the number of families living in poverty. And finally, a, a, a standardized questionnaire can be used to assess risk. And there, there are a number of different risk assessment questionnaires that have been developed. The, the one currently offered up by the CDC asks the following questions, whether or not the child lives or regularly visits a home built prior to 1950, whether or not the child lives or visits a house built prior to 1978, which is undergoing renovations, whether or not the child has a sibling or playmate with lead poisoning, whether or not there's an adult with a job or a hobby that involves lead, and finally, whether or not the family lives near an industry that releases lead. So children should have this risk assessment and testing if needed at one and two years of age, and again, between three and five years if it wasn't previously done. And for those children at risk, initial testing can be done with uh, either capillary or venous um, blood. Certainly getting capillary blood uh, can be a lot easier on uh, uh, chubby little one-year-olds. Um, however, uh, capillary samples can sometimes lead to false positives. Now, if that uh, level, that, the, that first test is, is elevated, that is at or above 10 micrograms per deciliter, the level needs to be confirmed by a second venous blood sample. And so again, to clarify, even if the initial blood level was with a venous sample, it should be confirmed. 
and the urgency of repeat testing depends upon the initial value. So uh, certainly within three months for children with levels between 10 and 19 micrograms per deciliter, one month to one week for levels between 20 and 44 micrograms per deciliter, within 48 hours for children with levels between 45 and 59 micrograms per deciliter, within 24 hours for those with levels between 60 and 69 micrograms per deciliter, and emergently for anybody with levels that are about 70. Now, any treatment is, is pegged to the level of the confirmatory lead level. And so uh, for children with 10 to 14 micrograms per deciliter, treatment involves uh, education about lead risks and repeat testing. For 15 to 19 micrograms per deciliter, an environmental assessment is added. For levels between 20 and 44 micrograms per deciliter, a formal environmental uh, investigation is added. Children with levels above uh, 45 micrograms per deciliter require um, chelation therapy, and for those with levels that are above 70, this um, requires um, hospitalization. And the, the CDC has a number of documents on their website that, that really go into the details of this management that's available at www.cdc.gov slash lead. But, you know, it's important to recognize that another source of really good information about lead poisoning is uh, your, your local or state public health department. So we're involved with a number of projects here at the University of Michigan to try to improve the timely detection and treatment of children with elevated blood lead levels. And unfortunately, the rate of any lead testing among Medicaid-enrolled children, a group which, you'd, which you should recall is at high risk and, and for whom testing is mandated in the first place, is, is low, um, uh, depending upon how you measure it, uh, at or below 25%. But we were interested in what happens to those children who are identified as having an elevated blood lead level. And based on what I said previously, you should recognize that at a minimum, children need to have follow-up testing to confirm that the initial level was elevated and, and to verify that the level's not increasing and certainly to track the success of any intervention that the child receives. And so for, for this evaluation, for the study uh, that was published, we, we conducted a retrospective cohort study. We identified all children less than equal to six years who had an elevated blood lead level between January 1st, 2002 and June um, 30th, 2003 in Michigan and who were continuously enrolled in Michigan Medicaid for the subsequent six months. And because we were interested in new cases, we excluded children who had an elevated blood lead level in the previous year. Overall, there were 3,682 children included in our study. And what we found was that only 54% of those children who had an uh, elevated blood lead level had any follow-up testing during the subsequent six months. We also found important disparities in the, in the receipt of follow-up testing. For example, Hispanic or non-white children were less likely to get follow-up testing than non-Hispanic white children. We found that children living in urban areas were less likely to get follow-up testing than those living in rural areas, and that those children living in the zip codes known to have a high burden of environmental lead were less likely to get follow-up testing than those living in low-risk areas. We also found variation by local public health department catchment area. Uh, in fact, children living in the areas served by the health department that had the highest number of cases of initially elevated blood lead levels had a lower likelihood of follow-up testing than those living in the other health department catchment areas. Uh, we were surprised that the rate of testing was so low. 
And to help us understand why this was occurring, we wanted to find out whether or not these children who didn't get follow-up testing were lost to the healthcare system. And therefore, we used Medicaid claims data to look for missed opportunities for retesting. And so what we found was that among those children who didn't get follow-up testing, about 60% of them had at least one medical encounter during the 180 days after their initial elevated lead level with an average of two to three encounters among those who did have subsequent uh, medical encounters. Now, the most common type of visit was for evaluation and management office visits. Uh, that's for acute illnesses, that sort of thing. That, that accounted for about 40% of the visit. However, 13% of the children have had preventive care visits like well-child exams, and 20% um, had, had an emergency department visit. And so to summarize the, the, some of the main points from our study, nearly half the children had no follow-up testing within six months. And those children with the greatest risk of lead poisoning in the first place had the lowest likelihood of getting follow-up testing. For many children who did not get follow-up testing, there were, there were missed opportunities to have that done. Now, our study can't identify why the follow-up testing didn't occur, and I suspect that there are many different factors. However, I strongly believe that quality improvement efforts can substantially improve the care that we provide for children, and therefore I'm grateful to have the opportunity uh, to discuss this on this call, and I appreciate everyone's time. But I, I believe that strategies are needed to ensure that all children get appropriate screening, that is risk assessment, that all children at risk are tested, and that all children with elevated lead levels receive follow-up testing and other care as indicated. And um, in conclusion, optimal management of children with elevated lead levels involves a partnership between primary care providers and public health officials. And I think that those in primary care should, have, should know uh, who in their community can help them with these issues. And I think that practitioners need systems to ensure that screening, appropriate testing, and, and complete follow-up occur. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kemper. Well, a uh, lot of important, interesting things to absorb there. We now want to turn to what the research and Dr. Kemper's recommendations suggest about changes in clinical practice, as he was just suggesting, uh, changes that clinicians and those in a position to perhaps introduce new ideas into clinical practice might consider. So we turn to you, Dr. Kylo. Uh, help us uh, navigate this. What sort of improvement in care uh, might follow from these latest findings? Uh, thank you, Madge, and thank you, Dr. Kemper, for that excellent uh, presentation. Uh, the value of good research, as everybody knows, is to provide guidance on how we practice, and we should use the research to actively update the way we provide care and to change our systems so that we can hopefully provide better care. I'm just going to review very briefly how we go about making those sorts of changes in our, in order to achieve uh, improved outcomes, and then we're going to have uh, a conversation uh, with Dr. Kemper about some of the changes you might want to try, and then we'll open it up for uh, question and answer. Our main guide to making changes in the uh, in our practice is called the Model for Improvement. It's a simple, yet we believe powerful tool for driving improvement in organizations. In fact, as healthcare professionals, uh, the method of system improvement looks pretty familiar to you for good reasons. It's, in essence, the scientific method applied to management and improving our processes. This process of both organizational and practice improvement really has two parts. The first part is about stating your hypothesis, and the second part is about testing your hypothesis in practice. Let's just review this very quickly before we go on to talk about, uh, to get back to the issue of lead testing. Uh, this first part, stating your hypothesis, really has three components. The first is 
setting clear aims that everybody understands, specifically what is it that you're trying to achieve. The second point is establishing measures so that you know if your cha the changes you test uh, or the small experiments that you run actually lead to improvement. And the third part is to identify testable changes uh, that will lead to improvement, in this case, improvement of uh, lead screening. So stating your hypothesis about what changes you believe will improve the outcomes is very important. So once again, part one is about establishing aims and measures, identifying testable changes based on the data, and a solid hypothesis. The second part is about actually testing your hypothesis, running many experiments if you'd like to think of it that way. And it's not the same as experimenting on patients, uh, obviously. It's more in line with rapidly testing rational changes in the way you practice in order to achieve safe, demonstrable improvements in care. And this is something we do every day. We just like for us collectively to do it in a more organized manner. Um, in improvement parlance, the process of testing a hypothesis or running these experiments is called the Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle, PDSA cycle. And it's really very simple. It involves planning a test, doing that test, collecting some data, and studying the results, and then acting on what you learned. Uh, if the quality improvement language of this PDSA, Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle, uh, doesn't sit well with you, well, that's fine. Just think of this as the scientific method in action, because that's what it is, the scientific uh, method used for rapid action-oriented learning. We want to take the best available knowledge, use it to drive the improvements that we test in our system. And then lastly, when we learn about that, we want to use those improvements and our, our, the knowledge we gain to actually move from testing towards implementation. So when are you ready to stop testing and to start implementing? When you've tested changes enough that you understand the, uh, the impact of those changes on your outcomes, on the measures that you created earlier, it's time to move from testing to implementation. Uh, and that's the way we go from spreading the changes from one physician with whom we might be testing something to our entire clinic, for example. Now, Dr. Kemper has made several recommendations based on his study, and we'd like to talk a little bit more about them. Dr. Kemper, uh, why don't we address some of the changes that we might suggest that participants uh, uh, try in their uh, clinical settings. What suggestions would you suggest? Well, I, I think that, first of all, there needs to be a, a system in place to make sure that all children who are at risk get um, testing. And one thing that I've found helpful is to have a piece of paper that can go uh, on the chart that lists the zip codes at risk and to identify whether or not the child has any um, uh, is, is enrolled in a public health uh, uh, program like Medicaid or the, or the WIC uh, program, because that'll identify most of the children right there that need to get lead testing and then include on that um, uh, the, the CDC questionnaire. And that's a way to ensure that, that uh, all children get, get, get tested and that, that leaves, and then create a, a tickler file to make sure that those, that, that you track the results of following, uh, the, the you, you track the results of the, of the lead test. Right. And let me, as we, uh, I thought your introduction uh, was really fantastic and the way you outlined the process was really great. And in essence, it involves screening, as you stated, and then testing, retesting for those who are ele elevated to confirm the results, and then potentially environmental assessment and treatment. When you look at that whole package, it doesn't look that complicated, but for, for a busy clinic, you could see how uh, they would miss some opportunities to do that in the rush of, of the day. Uh, are there any ways that you could think of to simplify that process? Or are there other ways around 
that that we ought to be thinking of, about. For example, uh, ought we to do um, for every child who comes to an emergency room, as an example, who might be within the one to two year age range, should we make lead test testing just a matter of routine for those kids uh, for screening? Is there any cost effectiveness data on something like that? The, there are no cost effectiveness data about obtaining those uh, levels routinely in the emergency department setting. And one of the concerns I have about doing it for every child that shows up into an emergency department is that already we have problems with um, tracking those children who have an elevated lead level in the first place. So I, I think that it really does belong in the um, uh, within the primary care practice setting within the child's medical home. Um, however, certainly not all children have uh, a medical home, and I think that that brings up uh, strategies that are outside of, the, um, of what can be done in primary care in terms of setting up lead registries that physicians can access to ensure that children get tested. For example, in New York City, there's a lead registry that um, uh, is similar to the to immunization registries where you can track uh, results. And I think that if, if that kind of structure were in place, then I think that it might make sense to do screening and testing outside of the, the primary care home. But until then, I, I think that there are potential problems with ensuring follow-up. But we know that um, for one- and two-year-old children, a lot of them are still going in for their well-child exams simply because of the uh, immunization schedule. I think that we've done a good job of making sure that children get immunized because it's uh, really just a very routine part of practice and that we need to figure out how we can make um, lead screening and lead testing a similar routine part of what goes on within the medical home. Yeah, it seems to me that that's a really fantastic example because we have done such a good job in general at immunizations uh, and uh, creating, uh, bringing lead screening into that process and making it similar in terms of the processes of care as immunizations uh, would seem to uh, provide the opportunity to improve our uh, performance. Do you know of any practices that have actually done that? either in an electronic environment, using an electronic health record, or in a paper-based world? I know that, um, that, that people have uh, begun to add that in uh, to the electronic health record, for example. Uh, I know that, that there's been a lot of work done in Indianapolis and that that's been uh, effective at increasing uh, rates of, of testing um, through, a, through a prompt and reminder system. I think that one of the big barriers to uh, screening and testing is the perception by many people that the community that they practice in is a low-risk community, and so uh, they they choose not to test. Um, the problem with that is there, there's very little community-based epidemiological data to know for certain whether what the what the local risk of lead poisoning is, and also. Children and families are mobile these days, and they also stay in many different settings, for example, daycares and that sort of thing. So it's very hard to know for any particular child what that child's risk of lead poisoning is, even in um, communities that may be perceived as being low risk. And certainly, 
if you don't test on a regular basis, you're never going to find it. And so uh, sometimes it, it can become a circular process where people don't test because they never find anybody with lead poisoning, uh, and, and that ends up just reinforcing things. Dr. Kemper and Dr. Kylo, this is Madge. I'm wondering uh, whether or not there's any uh, possibility in, in making something, this issue, a part of uh, kind of a routine intake questionnaire, so it's more of an opt-out. It's sort of the default is that the issue needs to be covered in some fashion, uh, so that really what happens then is somehow it, it, the, the question at least comes up uh, in every medical encounter. Uh, is it possible? Is, is that something that's just not doable? I, this is Alex Kemper. Yes. I, think, I think that that's a, I think that's an excellent question. I think that um, that is in fact very doable, and I think that most of the children at risk can be easily identified just based on the zip code that they come from and whether or not they're uh, enrolled in, in Medicaid. That that alone would identify many of the children that that need to be tested. And um, you know. I, I think that there's no reason why 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 the the kind of system that you describe couldn't be put into place, and I think that that would have dramatic effects on the rate of detection. Dr. Kylo, you uh, have sometimes talked about somehow making uh, kind of lead elevated blood level uh, levels even somehow framed by how we think about chronic conditions. Uh, is there anything that you might want to uh, say about that? Well, I think that the framework of how we manage chronic conditions and the use of the chronic care model, which uh, uh, call participants may or may not be familiar with, uh, you can get information on the chronic care model at www.improvingchroniccare.org. I think this fits into that framework in that you have somebody who has an identified uh, condition which requires follow-up, and therefore the appropriate thing to do is to put that person on a registry within your practice to assure that somebody is then tracking the results of that registry and making sure that the appropriate follow-up is done on each one of those kids. Uh, this is, hopefully will not be a long-term uh, uh, management issue and that follow-up will not need to go on for more than a year or two, but somebody needs to be very diligent about that follow-up. And it, from Dr. Kemper's study, that's where we're falling down in many instances is the follow-up of the elevated blood test. Okay. All right. Uh, if we're all uh, in, in agreement so far, uh, let's move on. And uh, just a quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short, and I emphasize short, surveys to make it easy for you. Please don't forget to complete the surveys. They're going to be emailed to you, and we do greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of the discussion we're having right now. We are now going to turn to questions from our callers who will perhaps uh, pick up on some of the things uh, that have just been raised. And you may have questions of various types about the science, about the methodology of this study, and about the process of how to go about making changes in clinical practice suggested by Dr. Kylo and Dr. Kemper today. And we do hope to especially focus on that area. Please state your name and where you're from and be as concise as possible and tell us to whom your question is directed. So, Kim, let's go to questions. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question, please press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue, and one by one, we can open your lines, so you may each ask your question. So again, that is zero one on your touchtone phone. And our first question is from Jeannie with Atlantic Health Systems. Please go ahead. 
Hi, uh, I'm Jean Kraft. I'm in New Jersey, and um, lead testing is um, certainly on the, the state uh, health department's uh, radar, and they're working with distributing uh, lead testing kits to a variety of um, centers. But my question actually has to do with um, you know the incentive for um, testing, and really, if you look at immunizations, I think most of that success is related to the fact that you have to go to school, and you can't go to school if you're not immunized, um, unless you you know, meet specific criteria. So my question is, um, is would there be value of um, or any opportunity to make lead testing for high-risk patients a requirement for school entry? Interesting issue, and I guess we're really talking about screening uh, to, to borrow from Dr. Kemper's uh, sort of uh, illumination of the terminology. Uh, either one, Dr. Kylo or Dr. Kemper, you want to jump in? Yeah, hi, this is Alex Kemper. I think that's, that's a great question. It's one that we've struggled with. Uh, certainly lead testing is required for entrance into Head Start, and if you look at rates of testing, it, it certainly bumps up around three and four years of age when, when children are enrolling in Head Start. The problem with mandating lead testing uh, or lead screening as part of school entry is that peak levels occur in children around one to two years of age because of mouthing uh, behaviors. And so you really want to identify children much earlier than um, school entry. And it, identifying children as they go into school, it really may be too late for a lot of the harmful effects uh, that you would see from the lead poisoning. True, although one could argue that, that part of the reason that infants get immunized at two months is anticipating, you know, the requirement that they have completed their series by, um, you know, entry to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. I think it's really a good point, and uh, this is Chuck Kylo. We thought about such legislative measures, and we'd be interested in hearing from anybody else who had other concepts or ideas that they've tried uh, around that. Other issues, Gene, that you might want to speak to, and Alex, that you uh, might have some knowledge of, is just purely the use of uh, billboards as an example to raise awareness about uh, lead testing in the one- to two-year-old group uh, in high-risk communities or other mass screening days targeted towards high-risk communities such as in uh, child care centers or around grocery stores or things along those lines. Any experience in that regard? I, yeah, this is Alex Kemper again. I don't um, have any personal experience with the um, with people using mass screening, for example, showing up at um, at daycares or, or other places where young little kids congregate. But I, I personally think it's a great idea. Now, I, I do know that. Um, there have been community activation efforts such as the billboards that you described. Uh, anecdotally from talking to people, I, I've heard that they feel that they are uh, successful, but I don't have any data to share with you all today. Okay. Thank you very much. Interesting area. Uh, next question, Kim. Our next question will come from Randy with Middlesex Hospital. Please go ahead. Yeah, this is Dr. Goodwin from uh, Middlesex Hospital in Connecticut. Um, I just wondered, <clears throat> is, there, is there any reason to suspect that uh, your data is uh, somewhat uh, state-dependent uh, and uh, Michigan is, is somehow different from uh, any of the other 50 states in terms of uh, processes for uh, follow-up care and, and uh, the like? I, I would tend to think not, but I just wondered whether you had any ideas whether this was at all uh, specific for the state of Michigan. Hi, 
this is Alex Kimper again. I think that's a great question. Generalizability is one of those things that we're always concerned about. Are we describing something that's just happening here in Michigan, or is this a more universal phenomena? Uh, as I was um, gathering these findings, I talked to some people that I knew in other states. Um, and, uh, for example, uh, uh, Illinois um, and um, uh, Indiana. And th the sense is that this follow-up issue uh, is cross-cutting. Again, I can't give you data uh, for other states, but, but um, you know, unfortunately, I think it's really not that much different um, across the country. But, Randy, this is, a, again, this is Chuck Kylo. I think you bring up a great point in that, uh, the, there is a generalizability issue, but there's the other point that we have a lot to learn from each other, and we have very few venues to actually talk about these kinds of process changes and the, and the outcomes that they produce. And this is one opportunity to do so. And so we're certainly interested in anybody on the line who's got a really high perf uh, performance in this area with documented data to support that. If you have specific system changes that you are aware of that you've tried that have gotten you that performance, we'd be delighted to hear from you. All right. Uh, the, the appeal is out. Uh, thanks for that question. We'll move on. Next one. Our next question will come from Amelia with 16th Street Community. Please go ahead. Uh, hello. My name is Amelia Rana. I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We serve a um, high-risk uh, high population for lead poisoning. What we have here is a mandatory uh, testing of hemoglobin and lead uh, for kids in 6 months, 12 months, 18 months and uh, once a year, uh, two, three, and five years, and it's working great so far. We have a lead program assistant here. She's in charge of making sure these families come back for the retesting. So uh, maybe it's an example that is working great for us. Amelia, this is uh, Madge Kaplan. Can I ask you, who designed uh, this system and how long has it been in place? Uh, our system has been working probably over the last uh, eight to nine years, and it was uh, born out of their, our concern uh, of the high uh, risk of our kids. We have a high um, Medicaid population. I have no doubt all our zip codes are um, at risk, and because our houses basically around are built around nine, 1900 or uh, a little bit older than that, but we have no doubt of the high risk, and that's how we became to create this program. Um, that is working, as I said, great. So, Dr. Kemper, this may get to your point of whether if, if, if the issue doesn't seem to be overwhelming and staring everyone in the face, is there still an opportunity to develop something as comprehensive as what Amelia seems to be describing? And again, Zal Kemper, I think that's I think that's a fabulous program, and you're really to be commended for for your efforts there. And I think one of the things that that reminds me is that those in primary care shouldn't feel like they're alone in these issues and that they should know who their contacts are at the local and the state public health department, both to help them when they do identify a child with uh, an elevated lead level, to know what to do and what services are available, um, but also to uh, help them understand what's going on within their community. But I, that, it sounds like you've had a great program, and I, I'm really very impressed. What I, what I like about the example is, and I, obviously we don't have all the details, I have a 30-second snippet of it, but if I, was, if I was running a pediatric practice, which I am admittedly not, I'm an internist, but if I was running a pediatric practice, um, 
my concern would be that every time I have to go through a screening before I actually do the test, that I would fall down on the screening and making the link to the testing. And I wonder if it wouldn't be easier, and I suspect there's no cost-effectiveness data on this, because trying to find the cost of the damage done for these subtly elevated lead levels is going to be very hard to put a number on. But from a process perspective, I would think that uh, the easiest thing for my practice to do would be just test every kit and, um, and make sure, just like immunizations, I don't have to go through a screening to figure out which kid needs a, you know, an H flu vaccine. We just give it to all the kids. And I wonder what the cost effectiveness in relatively high risk areas, in, which is going to include almost anybody in an urban, in an urban practice, I wonder what that would be. So that's kind of your argument for sort of a standardization to really increase reliability. It sounds like we're outlining some areas for further study. Uh, Amelia or, or Dr. Kemper, you want to comment on that? Well, well, yeah, and I, I would. This is Alex Kemper. I think that um, I think that whenever you standardize care like that, things are more apt to get done. Again, recalling back to uh, immunizations, and certainly for the one-year-olds. Most of them are going to have blood drawn anyway to make sure that they don't have iron deficiency. So that there's not that much of an added burden to the um, individual child. And um, one of the points I don't think that I, that I emphasized in, in, in my uh, opening monologue was that one of the real benefits of identifying children who have elevated blood lead levels is the prevention that you're providing to other children who may be exposed to the same source of lead that caused that index case to have an elevated blood lead level. Uh, in other words, the benefits of identifying uh, an elevated lead level in a child go well beyond that individual child. And so uh, determining the cost effectiveness uh, of, of increasing the rate of testing is going to be very difficult, but uh, I suspect that it's going to cause minimum harm and may really help a, a, a lot of other children. Okay. Yes. Uh, let's, let's move on. Another question? Yes, our next question will come from Amy with Allen County Department of Health. Please go ahead. Hello, this is uh, Dr. Deb McMahon. I'm the Health Commissioner of the Fort Wayne Allen County Department of Health. And first, I have uh, one comment and then one question. And it really kind of boils down to, I'm an internist by training, so I thought that lead poisoning had been solved by the time I took this position and uh, unfortunately I've become aware that it's still very much an issue. And the first issue, uh, to me, it's really divided into two important issues that I think were alluded to in the, or addressed in the article, and one is follow-up for those children that we have already identified through various mechanisms as lead poisoned. And I think we've seen a uh, tremendous increase in the number of kids that were, um, had their appropriate follow-up once we hired a case manager. Um, and then we also used a mechanism by creating standing orders at, uh, with my name on them, through my name, uh, at our various uh, uh, clinics or labs throughout town where people could go at the direction of our case manager to get their follow-up tests. We've had virtually 100% success in, in getting all of the follow-up labs that we then share with their primary care provider. Um, it's also been really important in helping get those. We also do a neurocognitive assessment that then allows them to be placed and referred into different programs like Head Start or speech therapy. And at the same time, we're able to do our environmental assessments and um, have had a no-show rate of essentially zero once we've, um, again, coordinated that through the case manager. So I think follow-up has been, I'm very pleased with our follow-up. Um, the issue, though, that I think 
think continues to be a problem, and we've tried a number of different mechanisms, and that is of screening. We've tried educating our primary care providers who provide um, services to uh, at-risk children in those zip codes um, to really no avail. We've had, uh, we did a campaign of 900 kids in 90 days going to Head Starts and all different sorts of places and really found very few kids that were really lead poisoned. Um, we just completed a neighborhood sweep where we went door to door and were um, trying to um, not only do some basic uh, screening for their house but then also to test their children and only identified 22 children there. And my question is I know that most people believe that the burden of screening belongs to the, the uh, primary care provider in the child's medical home. But as an internist, I'm not as familiar with the well baby visits, but I can't help but wonder if the well baby visit looks very different in these at-risk neighborhoods than it does out in, in the suburbs. And that are there different issues uh, that they feel more compelled to address that lead poisoning just, you know, they don't have all these flow charts of all these, you know, anticipatory guidance and all that, whether it's, there are other more pressing issues that might really conflict with them being able to really embrace this whole issue and put forth the, the screening that we need to have done. So I guess that's, that's my question. Good question. Uh, Dr. Kemper, you want to start off? Yeah, so, so again, this is Alex Kemper. That's just a fabulous question. And there's no doubt that if you look at all the components of the recommended wild child exam, it's really daunting. There are you know, a whole host of uh, both physical, developmental, social uh, uh, issues uh, to be covered. And certainly the components of the well child exam appropriately varies from community to community based on particular risks for various uh, outcomes. But to get to the issue of lead assessment itself and lead testing, compared to a lot of the other stuff, it's really pretty simple. You know, the, the, the screening um, is not that complicated. Most children will be identified just based on their uh, zip code and um, whether or not they're enrolled in Medicaid. And, and so it's really not that difficult. And remember that most of the one-year-olds in any case are going to be screened for um, iron deficiency. And so, you know, I, I, I really, I, I don't think that this should be a huge burden to practices. Again, I think that one of the reasons that a lot of providers opt not to do uh, screening or testing, including um, testing of Medicaid-enrolled children, is their perception of what the local risk is. And, you know, how many cases of elevated blood lead are you willing to miss um, uh, to decrease, to be able to decrease the rate of testing that you give? And, and again, one of the things that really concerns me is the lack of epidemiological data in, in neighborhoods. And it sounds like you actually have uh, pretty good knowledge of what's going on with your community. And it sounds like you've done a lot of really great work, which I um, commend you for. But, but again, I think that the issue of lead testing really isn't too onerous for practices. Dr. Kylo, anything you want to add there? No, I think there are some great examples in that. Um, bringing it back into the medical practice, uh, from an internist perspective, I do have experience. I frequently get uh, records from pediatricians as somebody's moving from their pediatrician over to our practice, and I find their immunization tracking sheet almost impossible to follow. And so I suspect that there are ways that we can help practices improve their immunization process and thereby their other screening processes as well, such as lead levels, so that they have a very clear place, either in an electronic uh, environment, if they're using an electronic health record, or in, uh, in a, on a paper uh, uh, tracking sheet to, boot, 
to track both immunizations and screenings, be it uh, anemia screening at one year old or, or lead-based screening. All right, let's uh, move on to a new question. Yes, our next question will come from Mary with Children's Hospital of Illinois. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Mary Schultz with the Children's Hospital of Illinois. I'm a medical director of a practice in, a, in an urban area. And just a comment and a question, first on the generalizability of the, the study data. I'm in central Illinois, removed from Chicago, but probably close to 100% of my patients are on Medicaid, and they all get screened. Our issue, though, is with the follow-up, and we have instituted some chart prompts with um, like a bright green piece of paper that says high lead level, please test level at any visit. Um, that's the thing that struck me the most about your study, Dr. Kemper, was that even with those chart prompts, we still find some kids that are falling through the cracks, and I'm wondering about the uh, possibility of one of the things that one of the other callers talked about, which was an opt-out system with having standing orders. So any kid who comes in between the age of one and two or one and three would basically get a lead level unless the provider opted out. This is a resident clinic, so um, so they're involved in decision-making as well. So, so this is Alex Kemper. I th again, I think that the, the opt-out idea is a, is a great idea to increase the rate of testing. Do you have a sense of why your green sheets um, why, why people aren't paying attention to the green sheets as much as you would like? Yeah, we have them on the left-hand side of the chart, which is where our problem list or summary list is, and the residents have a tendency to fold the chart over, so the illness visit sheet is on the right-hand side, so sometimes they don't notice it until after the patient has already left, unfortunately. We also do have a, a lead nurse who's not full, that's not her full-time job, but she does track um, to make sure those patients come in, and we have on occasion used the police department and DCFS um, to get patients in who we've been tracking and been unable to get to come in for their lead levels. So we do take it pretty seriously, but we're still missing a lot. So, so Go ahead, Dr. Dr. Kemper. And I think that maybe Dr. Kyle ought to comment on this, but that, that's a great example of how uh, quality improvement can really be challenging as well. I mean, who would guess that putting the sheet on the left-hand side would, would reduce uh, people paying attention to it? But um, uh, Dr. Kyle, what, what do you think? I think it's a brilliant observation, and I think it uh, demonstrates how carefully we do have to observe the work processes to understand why, when it seems like something that should be so uh, easily structured uh, is not producing the results that we want for it to improve, and we frequently underutilize this very simple technique of just uh, either talking to people about why something's not happening or just simply observing them for a little bit of time. I was wondering, Dr. Kylo, uh, in, in our sort of pre-discussions for today, you also have raised the issue about sort of staff education and uh, to what extent uh, just bringing all of this uh, more into sort of front of mind for staff can, can make a difference. Well, I, uh, a couple of the other callers have alluded to this. Uh, I believe that a lot of these routinized procedures can be better done taken out of the hands of physicians and that others follow guidelines frequently better than we do. And, in many, and, and there are practices that have removed the whole well-child visit from the, uh, the hands of the physicians, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some may have a guttural negative reaction to that, uh, but there are a number of ways that one a practice can do that, including the use of group visits to do group education and group well-child visits. And that may sound strange to some, but there's a decent amount of literature now over the past 10 years on the use of group visits for things like this. And I think there are a lot of other providers other than physicians who can be charged with uh, tracking uh, these things and given responsibility. And, and many staff really enjoy that level of responsibility and will do it quite diligently. 
All right, thank you. Whoops. Um, okay, probably uh, time for one or two more questions. Go ahead. Our next question will come from Sarah with Coalition to End Child-Led Poisoning. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, actually, this is Ruth Ann Norton, the director of the coalition. Uh, one thing I wanted to note that is in Maryland we have a law that does require before you go to child care or any uh, preschool program that is ever seen by the state uh, in pre-K or kindergarten, uh, you do have to show proof, actually into uh, in first grade, you have to show proof that your child was blood lead tested. Um, that has been very effective in the area of catching kids at three, four years of age uh, before childcare. But we continue to have a problem um, in having children, even though we have universal blood lead testing in Baltimore, uh, getting children tested. Mostly it appears to be access to care or access to the testing um, because of their managed care in Maryland, uh, families often have to go to outside clinics or laboratories to get their testing provided. I wanted to kind of get some feedback uh, from the authors on the idea of taking mobile testing vans into the communities, having community organizations do testing uh, locally, and also uh, moving more or moving back to cap electric testing versus venipuncture as the technology has changed. Hi, this, this is Alex Kimber. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in there first. For, first of all, that, that's, we, we've had the same observation uh, here in Michigan and some other work that I've done that um, there are a lot of uh, practices that don't have an on-site lab and they send um, families off to an outside lab to get the blood lead testing done. and. Um, Either because of the inconvenience or there are probably a whole host of different reasons, families oftentimes, even even when the blood blood test is ordered, don't make it to these uh, outside labs. So one intervention to increase the rate of testing that, that um, we're thinking about doing here is providing uh, kits for capillary blood testing for lead. Uh, within the practices, and I, I know that uh, uh, Mr. Ed Norman, who runs the uh, childhood-led uh, poisoning prevention in um, North Carolina, has very been very innovative in terms of providing supplies like that to practices, and we, we hope to, to learn from his experience um, here in Michigan. Um, and I think that, that you know having a mobile van and going out and, and testing children it, in general is a, is a good idea to capture those children that have problems with uh, access to care. My only concern would be making sure that that you can find those children again who have an elevated blood lead level. Okay, Dr. Kylo, any thoughts? No. Okay. <laughs> it's another very good topic. Um, we're kind of running out of time for questions, and I'm going to sneak something in here. Uh, Dr. Kemper, you spoke earlier about missed opportunities. Uh, I think there was a reference to a statistic of 60% uh, actually of kids were in the medical arena at some point within that six-month window uh, after the elevated uh, blood level test. And I'm wondering, uh, in terms of sort of other arenas in the healthcare system, if you have any kind of quick thoughts uh, about sort of linkages uh, in terms of this knowledge and information. I think that that's, that's really key, being able to share the, the information. And, and just in terms of a quick thought, one of the things that, that I think would solve this problem would be if we added lead to a registry like um, our state's immunization registry, which has been very helpful in terms of ensuring that children get immunized even when they show up to uh, other settings. 
All right. Wow. Okay. Interesting discussion. And I'm afraid that is all the time we have for questions right now. There will, however, be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue this conversation with one another. We hope you will. You will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Look under Community on the left-hand side and then Discussion Groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you do need to register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. We're coming to the end of this third in a series of hour-long discussions we do call Author in the Room. Thanks very much to Dr. Alex Kemper and Dr. Chuck Kylo for your knowledge and guidance today, and I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to make uh, some brief uh, closing remarks. Uh, Dr. Kemper, why don't we start with you? Uh, thank you very much. I, I would just like to underscore the fact that, that those in primary care should really screen all children at the appropriate ages, test and make sure that they have follow-up, and again, not to feel like they're alone, but to identify what the resources are in their community in terms of public health to help them achieve um, that goal. All right, Dr. Kylo. Thank you, Madge. I'd like to thank Dr. Kemper for both uh, the great research he's done and the great knowledge he's brought to this call. We've discussed, I think, some really great ideas that can be implemented or tested first before implementation at the practice level. Uh, we've discussed a couple of legislative measures that you might think about and certainly a lot of public health measures. And uh, I would encourage folks by, uh, by next week to think about what they might do in their local community to take some of these uh, ideas and to put them into action, to test them first, and then move towards implementation once they've collected some good data that shows the efficacy. All right, good challenge, and uh, thanks to both of you. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on June 15th, so mark that down, and stay tuned to the IHI and JAMA websites for details about the next author and topic. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether Author in the Room participants make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of ways to improve blood lead level screening of children at greater or greatest risk suggests some changes in clinical uh, practice that uh, providers could test on a small scale, as Dr. Kylo said, starting next week. We are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. We thank all who've joined us today for taking the time to complete the surveys. Again, thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Have a good day.